Well, I just want to thank everybody that's, that's here and everybody that's online. It's like, um, it's like stuff is after us, you know? If uh, COVID Delta can't get us, then COVID Omicron comes after us. And if that doesn't work, then a blizzard hits and we uh, have to fight it off and so on. So we live with all of these things all of the time. And, uh, and uh, uh, nowadays, it just seems like that's the, the, the story of our lives uh, these days. And we uh, have to deal with it. So I thank all of you who have struggled through and made it through the front door and are, are here. But also I thank all of you who are online and who are sharing in this time of, of worship to God and, and our study together and singing together and all of that. I, for the last two weeks, I really want to thank uh, <clears throat> those who took the leadership in leading our, our um, meditations and so forth. Two weeks ago, it was Carl bringing reflections uh, uh, around Martin Luther King and Martin Luther King's Day, King Day and and all of that, and uh, around the community of hope and that ministry, which continues on even yesterday with the blizzard and, and so forth. And I really want to thank Kyle for taking this into um, the, the story of God visiting his people in the Exodus. That's a theme that's going to come up again this morning and today in this message, and leading us into a really uh, profound reflection uh, on, on that. Uh, I also want to thank last week for Amy being here and uh, from California and uh, leading us in our, in our, uh, our uh, communion meditation. And this marks, as she indicated last week, the, the last week of her, uh, shall we say, employment. We're, I'm not going to ever let go of Amy but, uh, at all, but uh, the employment as one of the ministers of of the church here after 20, I think, what is it, three years, 21 years? Okay, 21 years uh, here in this, this congregation. Just a person of amazing heart and pastoral, pastoral heart, pastoral insight, wisdom, and uh, devotion to, uh, to God. And I just uh, thank her for all that she has done and for her whole family, especially, of course, Matt and the way in which he continues in leading and teaching here among us. Uh, this morning, as you heard uh, Laura read this uh, passage of, of scripture from Luke um, 7, uh, verses uh, 1 through 17, uh, Luke is taking us, as, as, we, um, as I like to imagine it, sort of taking us by the arm and, and leading us. He's pointing out things that we need to see, significant moments in Jesus' ministry, as he leads us to understand who Jesus is, what he's about, what, uh, what's significant for us. Because he's writing in order for us, like John also said, that we can believe in, in Jesus and understand him. And we are in the immediate aftermath of that section that we sort of traditionally call the Sermon on the Plain. It's a brief but powerful and very challenging statement of Jesus' teaching that comes in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 49. Just to get our bearings, again, since we've had two weeks away from the 
the, the following the story of, of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. If you go back it through Luke, Luke's narrative to um, that sermon, uh, uh, I'm sorry, through that sermon and back the, to the events that lead, led up to the Sermon on the Plain. Remember that, that in telling the story of Jesus' ministry, Luke focuses first on Jesus' teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth. This comes in chapter, chapter 4, verses 16 to 30. Um, the people there know Jesus, obviously, because he grew up in Nazareth. And they, they sort of th they think that they understand him. But at the same time, as Luke narrates the story, we realize that they don't know him as he wants them to know him, as he talks about fulfilling Isaiah chapter 61 and the meaning of that. They, they, they are impressed very much, but, but especially when he, he begins to talk about including the Gentiles, you, Luke narrates how they turn against him. And eventually it seems that they really intend to kill him. Then we watch the power and authority of Jesus as he leaves Nazareth behind and moves to the town of Capernaum. And part of our, our story for, in our text today is, is in Capernaum. There he heals the sick. There he casts out corrupting spirits, unclean spirits as they're called, in people. And people recognize that, um, that authority and power of Jesus' words. And in Luke chapter 5, verse 36, it says, And astonishment came over everyone. And they all started talking to each other, saying, what is this message, is one good way of translating it, or what is this word, this logos, this, this thing, this whole thing that Jesus is saying? Because with authority, and um, that word is going to be important all the way along here, it's the Greek word exousia, the right to say what to do, what is going to happen, with authority and power, He's commanding the corrupting spirits, and they're leaving. We watch Jesus calling Simon Peter. You remember the story as, as Luke narrates it. Jesus happens to be teaching by the seaside. He gets into Simon's boat. He finishes teaching. They go out on the, the lake along with Simon's uh, fellow workers, and um, they've, they're frustrated because they haven't caught anything after a whole night of, of fishing. And uh, Jesus tells this professional fisherman to let down his nets for a catch. Simon thinks it's useless, of course. But as it says, on the basis of Jesus' word, as Simon himself says, he drops the nets. And then he is scared by the vast catch of fish. Go away from me, he says, because I'm a sinful man. Being close to this Jesus, he realizes, is being close to something he doesn't understand and can't control. But then he can't, or at least he doesn't, want to go away from Jesus. And he's drawn ever closer by what he sees. And we watch, we're going to watch him all the way through the Gospel of Luke. And of course, it, we could go right on into the book of Acts. Jesus walks us through a series of controversies. That, I'm sorry, Luke walks us through a series of controversies that Jesus has with Pharisaic teachers and scribes. 
And they focus on his power to do healings and his authority to do certain things. He manifested undeniable power to heal. That's what gathered all those crowds to him. And then, though, he messed it up by also claiming authority from God to do things that <laughs> were not as undeniable. Things like forgiving sins when a paralyzed man was brought before him. He claimed that this was God working. And that was an entirely different thing. They were upset by the whole way Jesus claimed to use this authority. He welcomed tax collectors and sinners, not keeping the rigorous purity laws that were uh, part of their tradition and that they emphasized so much. The Pharisees expanded the regulations around Sabbath, and he would not do them. He would not follow them. He and his disciples didn't fast rigorously enough, if you remember one of those controversies. But he treated life as a wedding feast, as Jesus himself put it. Going back to that good old wine of God's intention when he first gave his commandments. All of this convinced them that Jesus' power to heal was, was not a sign of God's kingdom. They actually came, uh, that power came from, well, uh, it's real, they can't deny it, but who knows where it comes from. Ultimately, they're going to say it comes from the power of Beelzebul and so forth. It certainly wasn't an authority that came from God, an authority to forgive sinners and to welcome sinners, to define the kingdom of God, or to offer God's grace in unexpected ways. Luke clearly is leading us as we follow him to see just the opposite, of course, of what these Pharisees who make themselves Jesus' opponents see. This is not all of the Jewish leaders as we see in our own text today, but they are a particular group and one that will have a lot of influence. There is a profound Unity, not a separation between Jesus' power to do something and his claims of authority, but there is a unity. The authority in Jesus' word that heals a disease or commands a corrupting spirit to leave or even gives an astonishing catch of fish is all God's authority, giving signs that ordinary people could recognize of his inbreaking kingdom. It's authority to unfold the, the meaning of the laws that, we're, that God has given. It's authority to say what it means to, uh, to practice the purity laws, and that includes touching a leper and so on. Or in our text today, touching a dead body and a, and a, and a funeral beer. And the Sabbath, that's the time when God himself is working by healing and fasting, there that it needs to be adapted to express where we are and what the time is, and even to forgive sins. But then Luke grabs us by the arm and shows us just how far this goes, because we're we're clearly on Jesus' side as we read the gospel. 
And we're, we're on Luke's side. We, we're, we're, we know who our friends are. We're not usually on the side of these Pharisees, certainly, as, as Luke tells us the story. But he grabs us and tells us to listen to what Jesus teaches in that sermon on the plain. And if you remember, it's so challenging. It's, it, it's almost like he's pushing us back in, in among the Pharisees. Every word of that sermon is spoken with authority. And it challenges the way every single one of us live. From the closest disciples right around Jesus to the people at the far back of the crowd. The crowd that extends through the ages right down to this Sunday morning. Love your enemies. Just, just, that's just a phrase that we, we know, but just thinking about it. Thinking about what it, how it would change the world. Do good to others, expecting nothing in return. Don't judge. Don't condemn. Forgive others. Give and give, expecting nothing back. And begin to notice that log that's in your own eye. Jesus says that the words that I hear have to turn into real Actions. You remember that's the story there at the end. The one who hears those words. Same term that's used back there for what Jesus was speaking in the synagogue in, in Capernaum. Hears my words and does them or doesn't do them. Jesus says that those words that I hear have, have to turn into real actions. I need to trust him and to let the authority of those words really shape my life. That's the only way to build a life. You remember the life that he digs down through and founds it on bedrock that's really unshakable in all the floods and blizzards and pandemics that we experience, as well as all the sometimes even more destructive little storms that whirl in our lives. I start thinking that maybe Peter was right. Go away from me. I'm a sinful person. But the power is so real and so healing. And the vision of life is so beautiful and engaging. And the grace is so enfolding so as to include the tax collectors and sinners, but even me. That somehow I know that I'm hearing something true, something powerful, something from the very loving God who created me. So immediately after all the controversies, and they culminate with that, with the Pharisees on the one hand deciding that they've got to do something about Jesus to get rid of him, to destroy him. But on the other hand, in the other stream, the Jesus' sermon that he teaches to his, those that are following him. Then Luke recounts the two incidents that are part of our, our text for today that push us to reflect for ourselves on the power and the authority of Jesus 
and to think about what we see there. And I really appreciate Corinne's um, meditation on that. And I would just want to build on some of the things that, that she said in, in that and to carry, carry through with them. The first of the two stories recounts the healing of a centurion slave, a centurion servant in Capernaum. This is chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And I, I apologize that uh, our copier broke down. I was depending on it, and I, I did not get the handout uh, done at, uh, uh, because it would, the thing would not work. And so anyway, I'm sorry. I just apologize. That's all I can say. The second takes us about 25 miles to the southwest to a little town called Nain, which means beautiful or something like that. And the remarkable event when Jesus raises from the dead a young man, the only son of a widow in the town. That's Luke 7, 11 through 17. In each account, as you read them through, and I hope you'll get your, your Bible, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to be following the translation that would have been on that, uh, that handout uh, that, uh, for you, but uh, my own translation of it, but... They're great translations all, the, all around. When you read this, you'll notice that there is more emphasis on the meaning of the events here than on the miracle miracles themselves, even though the two are remarkable in each case. And earlier, there had been somewhat more emphasis on the miracles than on their meaning. Now the emphasis, Luke wants us to really think about these things. And each of these two scenes also ends with a remarkable statement to focus our attention. As I sometimes do, I'm going to take them in backwards order, reverse order, the second narrative first, and then c come back to the, to the first. For, um, because that second narrative in some ways gives the largest perspective. So I'm going to read, again, Luke 7, verses 11 through 17, uh, as you heard it read before, but just have it close in mind. And it happened in the time that followed, that is after the, the story of the, of the centurion, that Jesus went into a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd were all walking along with him. Now, just as he approached the gate of the town, look, a person who died was being carried out, an only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a substantial crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Don't cry. When he came up, he touched the beer, the sort of almost like a stretcher that they would carry a body to a cave, a burial place, a tomb where they would lay the body there in the tomb. When he came up, he touched the bier. That was something that would make you impure. And those bearing the body stood still. And he said, young man, I'm telling you, rise. And the one who was dead sat up and began to talk. Then Jesus gave him to his mother. What would you do? 
of fear took hold of all of them. But it's a very distinct kind of fear. And they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this message, this logos, this word, this message about Jesus went out in the whole Jewish region and in all the surrounding country. Jesus, as he enters this little town of Nain, does the impossible. He reverses the irreversible, the inexorable power of death. And he raises a young man from the dead. Even as his body is being carried out to be laid in a tomb. This unanticipated event, just the meeting at the gate of one one procession coming in, this whole crowd following Jesus that we're going to go into the city. This unanticipated event flows from the fact that something happened, flows from Jesus' compassion for his mother, who's already lost her husband. Very likely when they get to that tomb, there's going to be a box there, which now contains the bones of that husband, what was called an ossuary, a bone box. And he would have been laid in the tomb, and his body has decomposed, and now... And now his son, a young man, is going to be laid there where he was. And the woman who was with both of them, to whom, for whom their lives were so dear, follows here. Jesus has compassion for his mother, who has lost her husband, and is a widow. And Jesus gives life back to her by giving her son's life back to him and thus giving him back to her. He overcomes what cannot be overcome, the inexorable power of death. She's, you don't know what what her reaction is. It doesn't tell us. as, As Corinne said, she doesn't even ask for this to happen. Jesus simply does it. It doesn't require anybody else's permission for Jesus to do this. This is the the statement of the authority of his word. Even death doesn't have to give permission for this to happen. Jesus simply does it and gives life back both to the Son And if you're familiar with the vulnerability of a widow in that society, where a widow's whole life was structured as being a woman's life was structured by being first dependent on her father, then upon her husband, then if her husband died, upon her son, and so forth. And if those structures of support were taken away, the options turned toward begging or prostitution or other such things. There were no social network, uh, no uh, nets, social nets to catch them. At the end, Luke describes the sense of awe and astonishment 
that swept over the merging crowds of Jesus' own followers coming into the city and the townspeople in the funeral procession. A fear took hold of all of them, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. Is that what you would have said? I don't know about you. These are not the phrases that would have come to mind. I mean, I would have had a really big wow, uh, maybe, and some other things, tried to come up with some good things to say. But a great prophet has risen. God has visited his people. God has visited us. Both of these statements are surprising and, and unexpected unless we realize that these are Jewish people who know the scriptures. The rise of a great prophet echoes the famous prophecy that God gave to Moses and that Moses recounts in Deuteronomy 18, verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 18. There God tells Moses, I will raise up for them, that is for, the, for God's people Israel, a prophet like you, like you Moses, from among their own people. I will put my words in the mouth of the prophet. God's word in that mouth, who shall speak to them everything that I command. In some way, as they, as they watch the event, the people see its vaster meaning. God's promises from ages ago is coming to realization. The words of this prophet, Jesus, are, as God says in the prophecy, my words bearing the life-giving, creative, and authoritative power of God, the authority of God. It's even that Jesus' compassion and power and authority unite in this moment to remind these people who know the scriptures of one of the most notable of the prophets, Elijah. He also raised a widow's son from the dead, as recounted in 1 Kings 17. And notably, it was that Gentile widow of Zarephath that Jesus had mentioned and caused so much stir with when he taught in the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke 4, 26. When the people say, God has visited his people, these words take us, if you know those scriptures, take us back again to Moses and the exodus from slavery and oppression in Egypt that Kyle led us to reflect on last week. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, God tells Moses to tell the people in Egypt, I have visited you, that is, I have come and observed you, and what has, ha has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. The very same word that, the, that they use in their cry at the, when the young man is raised, it's the word that God uses when he says that I have visited you. I have come to see what is going on with you. Again, those people in Nain, and maybe now us as well, see God fulfilling his ancient promise, taking his people out of the death of their enslavement and giving them new life in deliverance. That's certainly what Zechariah in the first chapter of Luke, thought about as he blessed the birth of his son, John, who was going to become John the Baptist. Zechariah said, 
Zechariah's father was filled with the Holy Spirit, Luke tells us, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, for he, again the same word, he visited his people and brought about their redemption from slavery. This is what's happening with John and with Jesus. This whole narrative of Jesus' ministry is not about some maybe trivial controversies with the Pharisees about purity laws and Sabbath regulations. It's about the whole story of God and Israel and God's covenant promise from the beginning. What do they mean? Where are they going? But Luke wants us to see also Israel's relationship with God in connection with God's care for and interaction with all the people that he created all through the earth including Gentiles, non-Jews, the very people that some of Jesus' opponents had such a problem with. Thus, the first part of our text, Luke 7, verses 1 through 10, introduces us to a Gentile centurion. Approximate equivalent to a centurion would be an army captain. And this particular man is evidently from a a relatively wealthy family, and he's living in Capernaum. He may be a centurion, that is a captain, in the Roman army, and maybe he's been delegated to work with Herod Antipas. We simply don't know any more about the circumstances, but but just that he is a non-Jew and that he is a centurion. Herod Antipas was himself a client ruler for Rome in Galilee, and it would not be unlikely that the Romans had their their officers who would be around his court all, all the time. In any case, we learn that he has become what is often called a God-fearer. This is a term that comes up <clears throat> more in, <clears throat> in the book of Acts. A Gentile who's come to believe in the God of Israel to, to some degree or other. He's like the centurion Cornelius that Luke tells us about in Acts 10 as the first Gentile converted to the way of Jesus. In this case, we learn that this centurion has used his resources of whatever nature they were to help build the synagogue in Capernaum, likely the very synagogue where Jesus healed that man with the withered hand on a Sabbath day and thus made some of his opponents determined to destroy him. So this is how that narrative again goes. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. After Jesus filled the people's hearing, listen to the way that Luke describes it, he filled the people's hearing with all his sayings. That's the Sermon on the Plain. He went into Capernaum. Now a slave of a certain centurion, one who was highly valued by him, was so sick that he was about to die. But when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, asking whether he would come and save his slave. Now, when they came to Jesus, they urged him eagerly, saying, he's worth it for you to provide this for him, for he loves our nation, and he himself built the synagogue for us. Then Jesus started walking along with them. But though he already was not very distant from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, 
Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not important enough that you enter under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. Rather, just speak a word and let my servant be healed. For I myself also am a person positioned under a structure of authority. And I have soldiers under myself. And I tell this one, go, and he goes. And another, come, and he comes. And I tell my slave, do this, and he does. When he heard these things, Jesus marveled at him. Then he turned to the crowd that was following him and said, I'm telling you, not even in Israel itself did I find such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to his house, they found the slave in good health. We, of course, notice the rather colorful stages of the centurion's approach to Jesus. But especially striking is Jesus' statement at the end of the narrative. I'm telling you, not even in Israel itself did I find such great faith, such a great faith. Note how Jesus' words, Jesus' words there at the end, let us know that this story is about faith, even though the words believing or faith haven't been mentioned up to that point. Note also that Jesus says this right in front of his own disciples. Even the apostles, like Peter and James and John, as well as a crowd of many people of Israel who were so focused on Jesus that they followed him from town to town. Note also that Jesus doesn't explain exactly what he means. At least Luke doesn't record it for us. Both Jesus and Luke seem to count on us as readers now or as the people back then to think intently about what Jesus says. If we can't grasp his meaning, maybe we'll grow through the trying to grasp it. And maybe it will come to open us to see and to hear other things that Jesus says. It's intended not to inform us of a theological doctrine or a set of doctrines, but to help us to experience the faith that shapes our lives, or at least could shape our lives, and to experience that faith more vividly. The centurion, as the story relates, has a slave. The slave is valuable to him, it's specified. Either valuable professionally, maybe he's somebody who could write better than the centurion, or maybe it's personally. And the slave is sick and at the point of death. As in the story of at Nain, Death is that impossible barrier. The centurion is not a Jew, but he's heard about Jesus. And the desire for healing that forestalls death is universal for both Gentiles and Jews. It's not something that's distinct to one or the other. This is a man used to commanding, as, as Corinne highlighted. We, we watch him in this. He's an army captain. That's what he does for a living. 
As he says, he has authority directly to command soldiers and slaves. But there are other kinds of authority, too. He's built a relationship with the Jewish elders in Capernaum, and he can send them on an errand. He can send them as his emissaries to Jesus to convince him to come and heal, to save his, his, his slave. And they willingly obey his direction. And when they get to Jesus, they work hard to persuade Jesus to come. This is a man who's influential, who loves our nation. He has lots of resources. He's used them to build a city synagogue. He's worth the effort for you to provide this service for him. Note that these Jewish elders, unlike some of those Pharisees, seem very positive toward Jesus. Jesus doesn't pick at their motive and say, oh, well, you're just trying to get somebody who's made big contributions to be happy. He simply starts walking with them down the streets to get to the captain's house and to his dying slave. But before Jesus arrives, the captain again, or the centurion if you prefer, the captain again intervenes to control the situation. He's used to using his authority to control what happens. And so he commands, or probably in the form of requests, his friends to go meet Jesus and to stop him. He gives them exact words to say. Notice that it's a quote-unquote from the from the, uh, the, the, the centurion. It's not like something they would have uh, sort of uh, paraphrased here to the, where he, he speaks in deprecating language about himself. He gives them exact words to say, and notice that tell Jesus, command Jesus, it's all in the imperative voice, that command Jesus not to come, but that, again, command him how he wants the healing to be performed. I want you to speak a word and let my servant be healed. Now, his words are self-deprecating. I'm not important enough that you enter under my roof. But still, they're in the form of commands given to Jesus. Jesus could easily have taken offense. Who are you to tell me not to come? I did, I'm coming for the slave, not you, you high and mighty centurion. But Jesus wants, I think, both of them. And this mode of command is just who this captain is. What captures Jesus is what the captain says, or better, shows, implies in his message. I no authority structures. I live by them. I'm under authority. I'm in a hierarchy of authority that rises step by step from my slave down there through soldiers, through me to my commander, all the way up to the emperor. I know how the authority of the emperor can quickly control my actions and those of my soldiers. This is the authority and power that everyone knows, real authority, real power. Everybody recognizes. But that means also, speaking for the centurion, that I know the limits of that authority. Now, I or my commander or the emperor could order this slave killed. We have the absolute right and law to do that. 
We have the authority to impose death. But not even the emperor can order a dying slave back to health and life. Such authority is unimaginable. The authority and power that is embodied in your word, he implies, is something I can recognize as authority. But it is of a wholly greater realm than the hierarchy I know and that I live in. It gives life and health. It creates life. I see it. I recognize it. I know it's real. Simply say a word. That word will carry the gift of life across any distance, up and down any human hierarchy. That word gives life. That recognition of the reality of God's creative, life-giving authority and power, that it's present in Jesus, and indeed that the very presence of God is in Jesus. That recognition, Jesus says, is such a great faith. It is not defined by grasping details of doctrine or imposing rigorous practices, even though those are useful and sometimes very important in, in given situations. It is seeing. It is recognizing. It is knowing in heart and mind and body. It's seeing and knowing philosophically, emotionally, aesthetically, analytically, musically, whatever, with every part of my being that here among us is the God who created us, sustains our life, who has loved and will love us forever. To see it, to recognize it, to know that authority. That's where Jesus is leading his disciple and leading every one of us through Luke and through the gospel. Into that I always say, use the fancy word, existential, into that real, that engaged life that knows the very presence of God and it's his grace and love. Notice that Luke does not even tell us that Jesus spoke a word. He doesn't follow the command of the, of the centurion. He just simply says that those who had been sent, the Jewish elders and the friends, simply returned. God had intervened. What the centurion, the captain, struggled to articulate was real. That God who gives health and life was there, and health and life had broken out. That slave was alive and thriving. Death was thwarted. And then, as one watches, one sees how this narrative fits in with the one that follows. That this is what the story is about. It's, yes, it's about our everyday life and how we practice and, and, and maybe piety and how we treat each other and all of those things. But flowing through that is the life of God that lives 
in us and that we live within. A great prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people. Amen. Amen.